0: from the book of Ruth again, chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. It's, uh,
1: it's great to be with you. Uh, this is our final uh, sermon in our vision series. Whereas a church body, we have been looking at uh, the book of Ruth. And we've been looking at it uh, as kind of the idea of hospitality and what it looks like for the church's vocation as mission in the world to be a hospitable people. Now, this always was part of what the church's mission was. Uh, and somehow in the 20th century, we lost that. And so we as a church would like to reclaim that mission of hospitality. And so here at Hope Chapel, the past six weeks, we've been looking at a bunch of different ways in which we can do that by seeing the dignity in one another and seeing the sorrow in people's stories and preventing their harm and taking on their burdens and seeking their redemption. And this week, in a world full of brokenness and despair at times and hopelessness, we're going to look at what it looks like for one another, for the body of Christ, to sustain hope In one another as hospitality. Um, When my daughter was six months old, my wife and I were like, all right, we're out. We're done. Um, We're going to take a trip. And so we called grandma up and we met her halfway from Charleston and dropped Lila off with her. And we used flight points and we had a free place to stay with my wife's sister. And we went to New York. Now, we love New York City because uh, we get to do three of our favorite things, which is eat, shop, and go see shows. And so we did all of three of those things every day, rinse and repeat for like three or four days. The trip was a blessing. Um, And then, you know, like always, the day that we were going to leave, we run a little bit behind, you know, no biggie. It's just the biggest, one of the biggest cities in the world, you know. Uh, So we, you know, get to the train station about an hour and a half before our train, our flight's about to take off. So we're a little stressed, you know, anxiety's rising just a little bit. Uh, and then, uh, the train never comes and we're waiting on a specific one and it doesn't come and it doesn't come and we're getting close to that hour mark and we're really starting to stress. And so we just say, you know what, whatever, we're going to take an Uber. So we went upstairs, uh, and we got on our phones, we called an Uber and we we're like, if we have any traffic or any wrecks, we're going to miss our flight. 40 minutes later, I'm sitting in front of the, uh, airline attendant, And she says, the window to check your bags closed five minutes ago. She says, I can't even carry it to the plane. The doors are shut and they're locked. You missed your flight. So typically this isn't a big deal, but when it's a Saturday evening and you're a pastor that works on Sunday mornings, uh, (laughs) it's slightly a big deal. And we had a church-wide dinner the next night, right? Todd and Michael are gracious, but only so much. Um... And so, we go to the counter, and we say, hey, what are we going to do? And the flight attendant looks at us, and she says, oh, we can get you into Virginia tomorrow. It'll be $1,000. We said, well, that's not going to work. We're going to miss all of Sunday. And so, we looked at each other, and, well, really, Andrea looked at me, and I had this look of absolute despair on my face. And actually, I was probably pacing over there in the corner alone. What am I going to do? I mean, I was, I was at the wit's end. And so we pull up our phone and we say, what is New York City to Greensboro? Nine and a half hours in the car. So then we start calling rental cars, companies, getting a car, a little beacon of hope. We said, well, we can make it. And all the rental companies, all of the cars were gone. Turns out the weekend that we were doing this was the eclipse weekend. So every single flight, every single rental car to come to the southeast was booked because everyone wanted to come here for the eclipse. So we called Andrea's sister up and said, hey, we're taking your car and we're driving to Greensboro. <laughs> so she drove her car up to the airport and we drove. Now, here's why I tell you the story. That was a tough drive. We, were, we didn't leave New York City until 6 p.m., We knew from the outset that we were going to be in the car for at least 10 hours. And it was going to be about 4 or 5 in the morning when we got there. But here's what was wonderful about that trip. Somehow, Andrea and I had more than enough energy. We laughed. We listened to a book on tape on a a phone because the car didn't have Bluetooth speakers or anything, so we were holding it up between us. We listened to music. Andrea made this... In, I mean, insane social media video about it. You can, she, she'll probably play it to you later if you want. I mean, it, we had a blast together. Part of it was because we didn't have a baby for three weeks. Um, or sorry, three days, and we felt really, not three weeks, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> three weeks But we would have been all bouncing off the walls. Um, three days of babyless time, and we were, were rested because of it. But it was one of those moments that together we really sustained one another, in the midst of great um, trial, and I mean, it's not a huge deal, but it felt like a hopeless situation, and we sustained one another in it. So, what's the point? Well, the point is that this is a glimpse of what our posture is to be to one another and to our neighbors. We are called to sustain hope in one another and in the world, in difficult and dark circumstances. Think about it this way we live in a time of extraordinary contradictions, if you think about it. More than ever, perhaps, we are in a time of tremendous technologically, technological, ecological, economical innovation. And our ability to promote flourishing and goodness in the world is, is unparalleled to probably any other time in all of history. Have you ever considered that? And yet, our world... Seems as broken as it's ever been. Oppression, racism, misogyny, poverty, violence, abuse, and disregard for one another is prevalent just as much as it's ever been. And I don't know about you, but that can lead me to a place of hopelessness, of despair, sadness, even apathy, and certainly of cynicism. And we as Christians, who often feel persecuted in our own right, our temptation is to join in with those voices of despair and of cynicism. And though there's a time for lament, there's a time for naming some of that brokenness and darkness, our calling as Christians is not to only stay there, and certainly not to stay there in a place of despair or cynicism. And the reason for that is because we have the hope of Christ in us. We have the hope of the world In us, that sustains us, that gives us a reason to live, gives us a reason to hope. We are reminded that our time here of of brokenness and of pain and darkness is only temporary because Christ is coming. We're reminded that our time here has great meaning and purpose even when it doesn't feel that way because Christ has come already and he's coming again. We have the hope of heaven in us. And through us, that hope is sustained. And, and so that's our calling. Our calling is to be little beacons of hope in a world that has no hope. And that is what we see in this passage. As we end this journey that started with Ruth and Naomi, they were in this place of great emptiness and despair. They have their hope sustained by a God who loves them in a community that rallied around them from emptiness to fullness. So as we come to this text, we're going to see two things... That are going to constantly fuel us as we sustain hope in one another in the world. And they're this one, God restores our past. And two, God promises our future. So, first, God has restored our past. And I want to set a little context for you guys if you haven't been here with us the past few weeks. The book of Ruth starts with the Israelites, and they're in the promised land after years of wandering in the desert. They finally had a home, a place of belonging after centuries in slavery and wandering. God never forgot what he promised Abraham to bless him, to make his name great, to give him a land to call his own. But what the Israelites learned, and often we learn same lessons like this, is that this home of theirs, this promised land, things weren't always going to be perfect for them there. There's still brokenness in the world. Sin, the kingdom of sin, still causes brokenness in the world. So a famine hits the Israelites in the promised land, and Naomi And her husband, Elimelech, leave their home and lands with their two sons. They go to, literally, greener pastures in Moab. And while there, their sons, uh, Kilian and Mahon, they married Moabite women. But what we see is that in sequence, Elimelech, the father dies, and both of the sons die. And so we're left with Naomi and two Moabite daughters-in-law. And one, Ruth, decides to come back with her to Jerusalem. So they go back in an incredibly precarious situation. They limp back to Israel, penniless, destitute, with no land, no identity, in an extremely vulnerable and dangerous situation, Naomi and Ruth. And so we see in chapter 1 that Naomi renamed herself bitterness. She was at such a place of despair and emptiness. And what we've seen throughout the past couple weeks is Naomi's scrappy foreign daughter-in-law constantly sustaining her mother-in-law, committing herself to her, obeying her instructions, loving and providing for her. And we see Naomi in the shadows of the book, but throughout we see Ruth doing everything in her power to help restore Naomi back to a place she was before the famine hit in the promised land. But here's what we're going to see this morning. Is that it wasn't just Ruth sustaining Naomi and restoring her. The Lord Himself, we have a God who is in the business of restoring us, each and every single one of us in Him, and He did this to Naomi. Verse thirteen says this: So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The Lord gave her conception. The providence and work of God has has thus been something that the characters in Ruth have have talked about, and. The narrator at times has dropped clues for us that the Lord is at work in every part of the story. But right here, he comes out and he says it. The Lord intervened, and he bore Ruth and Boaz a son. And every birth, of course, is a miracle. But this one is doubly so. And here's why this child, this baby, was symbolic of a complete and utter restoration of Naomi's past. And the townspeople know this. And they tell her this in verse 14. They say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. They say, This baby shows that God has never left you. He has never forsaken you. You who are bitter broken at the end of your rope, despairing the Lord has been with you the whole time. He gave you a family, a home, and he's blessed you with a lasting legacy. He has restored your past. Something that they never thought possible when her husband and two sons died in a foreign land. Never thought her legacy would go on. But here's what's cool about the way that the Lord works in sustaining us and restoring our past. He often uses people to do it. Ruth had so much to do with this. Our our scrappy Moabitess turned Israelite woman and wife and now mother was a major part of Naomi's sustaining hope and plays a direct role in restoring her past by bearing her a son. And she was so committed to Naomi, so committed to her well-being. The townspeople say that she is more to her than if she had had seven sons. And in a patriarchal society like the ancient Near East, that would have been as emphatic a statement as possible. They place the baby on Naomi's lap, and they say, a son has been born to Naomi. And that's purposeful that they name her there. Because they know what we know. They know that she wanted to rename her own name, Bitterness, in chapter 1. And they say, no, 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 no. Your name is Restored. To Naomi, look what God has done for you. And the story is a reminder to each and every single one of us that we have a God who is about the business of taking people who are empty and bringing them to fullness in Him. And He does this by restoring their past. Think about this from Naomi's perspective. She had everything She had a family, a land, an identity. She was part of the people of God. She had the good life. And then disaster struck. She loses everything. But God restored her to fullness. And this is where our hope lies. This is where we need to be sustained this morning. Like Naomi, who God took from emptiness to fullness, in Christ Jesus, our past emptiness, filled with sin and brokenness, He has restored to fullness in Christ Jesus. We have a God who sees our past sins and decided to do something about it. And even when we were not able to, God sent his son so that we would be restored to what we were always created to be in right relationship with him. There's no greater hope in the world than that truth right there. And there are those of you this morning who have a lot of brokenness and sin in your past. Whether it's your own sin and shame, or some of it is sin and shame done to you, you have a lot of it. We all do. But perhaps this morning it's weighing you down and it feels like a noose around your neck. It's a burden you can't bear any longer. I want to remind you this morning, we have a good and gracious God who restores our past, who isn't scared of our past brokenness and sin, and who wants to make us new in him. He wants to make you new. That's what's so cool about restoration for us as individuals. It's something in Christ Jesus that we have already, right? But it's also something that he is doing to each of us right now. He is in the business of restoring us. More and more of who we were always meant to be right now, in this moment. That's why the grace of the gospel is new every day. And here's what happens. The more you allow Jesus to restore your past brokenness with the newness that is his grace in his gospel, it inspires hope in you. The more hopeful you are, You're reminded every single day that you are a new creation in Christ and that you have the hope of the world in you and the hope of heaven in you. And then something even funnier happens. You're able to remind one another of that same sustaining hope. You're able to sustain one another because restored people are about the business of restoration in others. Restored people are about the restoration of others. So what does that look like practically? Well, it means as Christians in community with one another, we are quick to repent. We are quick to admit wrongdoing to one another so that our relationships in community with one another can be healed. It means that for each of us, our calling is to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters in the hope that we are unified in grace. you know why this is hard? This, This is hard because they're in, in this gospel living with one another, there's no room for pride. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for pretense. Because he has restored our past when we never could. And we're all in that same boat. He did what we never could, what we were never able to do. So there's no place for righteous indignation with one another when all of our past have been healed and restored by Christ Jesus. And when we don't do that, when we don't look at one another that way, when we don't remind ourselves that we are new creations in Christ, you know what we do? We lose hope. We lose hope in Christ Jesus. We lose hope in ourselves. And that's when cynicism steps in. So I just ask all of you this morning, let's reject cynicism together. Let's reject despair together and remind one another that Christ has restored our past. And we are new creations together in him. So, one, we've seen that we must sustain the hope of Christ and one another in the world, and we do that because Christ has restored our past. Now we're going to see that he promises our future. So, what's true about this God that we are in relationship with is that he doesn't just restore our past from emptiness to fullness in him, but he actually takes our past, he takes our brokenness, he takes our stories, and he uses them for his purposes. Our past shapes our future. And yes, that is a damaging and difficult thing for a lot of us in a lot of ways. But it can also be one of the most powerful ways God changes and shapes us is through our own story. He uses our past that he restores and brings it into his plans for our future. And he promises us a future that's more powerful and wonderful and perfect than we could ever imagine from the brokenness of our past. And that's the kingdom of God that is in part here and that we hope for and wait for to come one day when Jesus returns. And this baby born to Ruth and Boaz and to Naomi would end up having more ramifications for the kingdom of God than they even thought possible. And here's what's cool, and this is I love when the Bible does this. It wasn't only that... The narrator and Ruth, and Bo- oh, sorry, that Ruth and Boaz didn't know the ramifications of this baby. The narrator himself did not even know the ramifications of who this baby that was born to Ruth and Boaz, the ramifications he would have on the kingdom of God. So when you look at the end of this book, uh, the, chap- the verses 17 through 22, it's a genealogy. And let's be honest, genealogies are boring. Um, they just are. Sometimes throughout the Old Testament, they seem pointless. Often when I'm reading, um, I skip them right? But here's the thing. Genealogies have a point. The genealogies in the Bible, at least, are a reminder of something. A reminder that our history matters. We have a God who has worked throughout history and that the legacy of his people matters. Our future is always rooted in the past and the future that Christ has promised each of you is rooted in your past. So when the narrator says this in verse 17, they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The narrator is telling us, look, this baby, this baby who is the product of despair, of brokenness, of famine, and death goes on to be the grandfather of the king of Israel, the greatest king in all of Israel. No matter what has transpired to get to this place, God has restored it so much, this child, his legacy, his ancestors will have an incredible future. So great that his offspring will be king over all of Israel. And so this story right there, it ends at a place of great hope. Because it doesn't end with Naomi or Boaz or Ruth or, or happily ever after. Because that baby's coming and it's going to be screaming a lot. It ends with the king of Israel. And the greatest king in Israel's history. Here's what the author also didn't know. It doesn't just end with the king of Israel, but with the kingdom of God. It's easy to scope over it, but the genealogy in Matthew 1 is fascinating. It has astounding names in it if you actually look at it. And do you know who Boaz's mother was? If you go back and look at Matthew 1. This was so cool to me. We find out in that genealogy that it is none other than Tamar who was the Canaanite prostitute that allowed the Israelite spies into the promised land when they were going to enter into it. She covenanted with the Lord and his people after and married Boaz's father. And then we see in the genealogy that Ruth, our little scrappy Moabitess, who covenanted to her Israeli mother-in-law, followed her to her homeland, worked for her, was faithful to her, Jesus Christ was also born of her line as well. And if you look at that genealogy, it'll go back and it names Rahab and it names Tamar and it names Ruth. If you need to believe that God restores our past bitterness of sin and brokenness to future promise of joy and hope, look no further than Jesus. The root of Jesus' family tree had a Moabite and Canaanite grandmother. He was heirs to their story and their legacy. Jesus, fully God and fully man, perfect in every way. The promise of the future of the whole world came from a line of broken, sinful, foreign people. I don't know about you, but that gives me tremendous hope. One commentator puts it this way. Chris, if you want to toss it up there. The collective points these stories make is not that the mothers and fathers of the Messiah were exceptionally worthy people. But that God can use even the least likely agents to bring about redemption. It is God's grace, not our own merit, that brings forth the Redeemer of the world. We who consider ourselves the people of God are frequently tempted to think that redemption comes as a reward to those who are faithful. But we need to be reminded on a regular basis that God's faithfulness, not our own, brings about redemption. God's faithfulness, not our own, gives us the hope of redemption. So what does that look like? Well, it reminds you that today, not only is your past restored, but your future is promised. You who are sinful and broken have been healed and restored in Christ, and your hope is now in a future where you dwell with Him forever. When God comes down and restores this place in the new heavens and the new earth, you who deserve death now have life eternal in Christ Jesus. That is the hope that sustains you. And this is uh, simultaneously a life Changing, overwhelming reality, and also a simple, ordinary thing as well. We are living in kingdom days now, yet we long for the kingdom to come in fullness, so we have hope for a future that we can share with the world. Let's see, as Christians, our temptation is twofold it's either to despair in what the world is hoping in, and thus becoming cynical. Or it is to join in the course of the world and to look to the world to direct where our hope should lie. Both fail us. The world is a place of misguided brokenness, and I understand that it is easy to look at it in despair, to join that course of despair. We have a hope that sustains us, that Christ can redeem and restore those broken parts. Do not despair. In the same way, let me remind you, Christian, your hopes do not rise and fall on the American political cycle, but on the eternal kingdom of God. Your hopes do not rise and fall on the stock market cycle, but on the everlasting kingdom that Christ inaugurated. Your hopes do not rise and fall on the cultural trends that tempt you to abandon who we are as Christ's people. But we have A kingdom identity that comes in the kingdom of God. Our hopes do not rise and fall on those in power over us and in the world, but through the redeeming and restoring work of a powerful God who reigns right now. May his kingdom come. Now, as kingdom people, we are called to enter into any and all of those spheres for the sake of restorative work. But our ultimate hope is not in those institutions. But in the kingdom of God and the promise of King Jesus to never abandon or forsake us, where do your hopes lie this morning? And Dre and I, um, we made it home. Actually, uh, part of the way she sustained me uh, in that time was uh, she let me sleep for a little bit. Um, And so... She let me sleep the last couple hours. Um, And, you know, that was uh, just one instance. And the truth is, we're not always going to do this well. And Dre and I don't always sustain one another well in our marriage. We fall short of that all the time. And the truth is, as community, you guys don't always sustain hope in one another well. And that's okay. That's where the grace of Jesus Christ comes in. I praise the Lord that it is not on us as a people to only sustain hope in the world. That it is the work of Christ Jesus that sustains that hope. He is the one that is at work. He is the one that fulfills, sustains, redeems, and restores this place. And our calling is simple. It's to make that known. It's to make that known in one another and to make that known in the world. Let us go from this place and be sustainers of hope. And as I close, I want to I read um, this quote from Frederick Buechner over you guys. In his poetic and beautiful way, he puts this so succinctly for us. He says this, the past and the future, memory and expectation, remember and hope, remember and wait. Wait for him whose face we all of us know, because somewhere in the past we have faintly seen it whose life we all of us thirst for because somewhere in the past we have seen it lived, have maybe even had moments of living it ourselves. Remember Him who Himself remembers us as He promised to remember the thief who died beside Him. To have faith is to remember and wait and to wait and hope is to have what we hope for already begin to come true in us through our hoping. Praise Him. And praise Him for that. Amen.